0: So we're in a series uh, called Proclaiming the Kingdom, and it's what we call a practice series. Practice series are basically a reminder to us. I'm going to have a fan blowing the pages of my Bible. Hold on here. Um, practice series are a reminder to us that, um, that learning to be apprentices of Jesus is not primarily a... Uh, it, man, that thing is... Ah, There we go. Okay. Not primarily an intellectual practice. It's not just learning new things, but it's living the life of Jesus. He invites us to uh, what we say as apprentices, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and do the things that Jesus did. And so that, that process of growth is not just learning new things, but it's learning to live in certain ways. And so these practice series are designed for us to engage what have been historically called the spiritual disciplines, or what we call habits or practices of jesus and uh, proclaiming the kingdom isn't a traditional spiritual discipline uh, and it's tough to even isolate it within jesus life because he did it all the time it was the way he lived he uh, engaged the world around him by proclaiming the kingdom and so he did that first through building real relationships with people and then with those relationships as the context he declared what it would look like if jesus if if god the father was in charge And then he lived that way. He showed them through his actions what it looked like if God the Father was in charge. And so uh, we've been kind of journeying through this. If you don't have a practice guide yet, I'd love for you to grab one. They help you uh, walk through in very practical ways the things that we're talking about. Again, not primarily intellectual, but practical. And so uh, they're available here uh, over on the bench, and they're also available online uh, in PDF form and on the first page of that practice guide there are four little line drawings and that's really what we're using as a framework for the series and so we spent the first 2 weeks dealing with the idea that God is for us and so we could represent God for us with that beautiful drawing right there see how do you how do you like that that's what you can do at 5am on a paper plate that's right so uh, so this idea here is that God is happy God's in a good mood when God comes to us and engages us. We tend to think of God as stern or maybe disappointed. I hear that a lot. Frustrated, even angry. God's not like that. The Bible reveals God to be a, a benevolent towards us, loving towards us, but not just loving, forgiving, merciful, full of grace. So when, when the Bible says, when Jesus says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, he's saying, that God's position toward the world was one of grace and mercy. And that's what we find even with all of the bad rap that the God of the Old Testament gets. What we find through the entire Old Testament is that's the character and the heart of God, that he's for us. And so God being for us then leads us into this uh, process of learning to proclaim what's true about the kingdom of God. What's it look like when God the Father is in charge a God who is for us. And so we're going to jump into that today. But before we get there, I want to ask you a question, kind of bigger picture. As we think about practices, why, from an earthly perspective, would we become apprentices of Jesus? So just think through that question. From an earthly perspective, why would we choose the work of apprenticeship? And you might say, well, we're going to be more like Jesus. That, that'll be good. We want to be more like Jesus. That's what we declare one of the actions of an apprentice to be. That would be a good thing. But the Bible tells us, 1 Corinthians 13, that we will see him face to face and that at that moment we're going to be like him without any of the work of apprenticeship. So why go through the effort now? Like, why not just wait, right? Why, why not just? There's going to be a moment where we're going to be just like him without any work. He's just going to like... We're going to be like him. So why do the work of apprenticeship? It's a real question because I think for most of us, we don't have a real answer for that question, which is why we're not motivated to be apprentices. Not so much because we're thinking that someday I'll be like him, but we're just thinking, "Eh, what's the point? Colossians chapter 1 says that Jesus is the very image of God and that As Jesus has come to be the sacrifice for us, that now God has begun a process of restoring all things under the headship of Jesus. So God the Father is actually reconciling the entire earth, all creation, back to Jesus. And apprentices of his are part of that work. So we get to be a part of the restoration, reconciliation work of all creation. Ephesians chapter 1, again, says that you and I were called from before we were born, that God has predestined us to be his followers, that as we are shaped and formed into the image of Jesus, that's apprenticeship, that we become a part of God submitting all of creation to the headship of, of Christ. So what's happening here is that all of the world is being reconciled. The kingdom of God is going forward. And as apprentices, as we become more and more like Jesus, we become more and more useful in that work. Now, why do I tell you that? Because I think all of the practices, and certainly the idea of proclaiming the kingdom, can become a theoretical idea that we tend to think are for, that's for the spiritual people. Like, there's the super spirituals. Like, if you look through history, the people who have uh, kind of organized the practices and, and modeled for us the practices, they were like monks and nuns and like super spiritual people, right? Like, what about us normal people? Well, see, here's the thing. Us normal people are being invited into the reconciliation of the entire world back unto Jesus. And so when we step into this, There's real effort behind it. Like we want to jump into that because the kingdom is going forward. Now the kingdom's going to go forward with or without us. But as we become more and more like Jesus, we get to be a part of that. And so that's what I want you to look at today as we jump into this way of proclaiming the kingdom. Because this isn't just a theoretical exercise. There's real practical implications to us stepping into that. So let's pray together. And then we're going to dig into the word and see what Jesus has to say to us. Lord, as we open our hearts up to you this morning, we thank you. We thank you for all that you have done for us, in us, and you desire to do through us. And so, God, I pray now that you would speak to us through your word. Open our hearts, our minds, and our spirits to what you have to say to us. And God, would you meet us? By your spirit, speak. God, I May my words that come from my flesh fall to the ground and be forgotten, but may your words that come from your spirit, may they penetrate our hearts and change us so that we would be more like you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So we're going to organize under three thoughts today. We're going to look first at the fact that Jesus comes to be with us, some of the implications of that, that Jesus not only comes to be with us, but he becomes one of us that there's a distinction he's not just with us physically but he becomes one of us and then we're going to look at the invitation that Jesus gives to us into that pattern of proclaiming the kingdom so Jesus is with us he becomes one of us and then ultimately he invites us and so uh, let's start in oh there goes God being for us man look at that All right, so let's start in John chapter 1. Uh, Familiar text, but probably not familiar to you in October. Much more familiar to you in December. So listen to these words. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You're probably used to hearing that uh, during the Advent season. It's a shame that it becomes an Advent text because it's really a broad theological statement. What John is saying is that Jesus, as part of the Trinitarian God, God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, has eternally existed and that he's behind all of creation. So he's making this very broad statement about the deity of Jesus, who he is, what that means, which, by itself is impressive, but when you get down to verse 14, it becomes this radical statement. So listen to what John says, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It's often gets quoted in Eugene Peterson's translation or paraphrase the message that God took on skin and moved into the neighborhood God was our neighbor. He became one who was with us. God comes as the full, Jesus comes as the full embodiment of God. In fact, John says he's full of both grace and truth. The the extremes of what we see in the character and the nature of God the Father, Jesus embodies in, in his fullness. The book of Hebrews says that when we see Jesus, we see the fullness of God. So it's not just that God is with us, though. If you go down a little bit further to verse 35, you start to see this movement of the God in the person of Jesus that's with us, where he not just is with us, but he invites us to come along with him. So this is starting in verse 35. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Jesus invites them to come along with him. That's the the broad invitation of Jesus throughout the Gospels to not just the disciples, but to the crowds that are willing is to come and follow me. If you jump down to verse 43, it says this. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. And Nathaniel, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So Jesus invites them to come and follow after him. The disciples invite other disciples to come and follow after him. There's this, there's this entourage, right, of Jesus being followed. He's not just with them, but they're with him. There's a modeling after and an invitation in. That's where we get the whole idea of apprenticeship. So Jesus is coming to be with us, which is, which is good because now we have God the Father, the creator of all things, God who's eternally existed, come taking on skin, being with us as his people. All that sounds great. But now turn to Luke chapter 5 because there's a problem that's inherent in the idea of Jesus coming to be among us. Let me read for you just the first eight verses of Luke chapter 5. This is parallel. So this is right at the same time. It's a couple of chapters into Luke's gospel, parallel to chapter 1 of John's gospel. Jesus is calling the disciples. Uh, Listen to the way that Luke records it. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So what happens? Jesus, as teacher, totally fine. Jesus gets into Simon's boat, goes out a little bit, begins to teach. Everybody's listening. All that's great. Jesus says to Peter, Let's go out a little bit and cast a net. Okay, he's a crazy teacher. He wants me to go like figure out how to fish. I already know how to fish. He doesn't know how to fish. Whatever. No big deal. I'll go out and do it. As he puts the net in and all the fish swim into the net, all of a sudden Peter recognizes, this is not Jesus the teacher with me alone. This is not Jesus the rabbi with me. This is God with me. Right? This is all of a sudden Peter says, whoa whoa, whoa, whoa! i'm no longer interested in this right like i i'm good with you teaching me i'm good with understanding the kingdom of god i'm good with learning about what the prophets have to say but i'm not good with god with me so in our line drawings we would represent it this way see you now great art here we go look at that so you have god god the father with a halo smiley face god is still for us right But when God's with us, Peter's over there with the baseball cap. That would be us with the baseball cap too, right? Peter's not happy. Why? Because when God shows up, he's holy and we're not. And so there's a a clear recognition when the person of God is revealed, God with us creates, makes us recognize the separation between God and us. So God's for us still. He loves us. He's benevolent towards us. He's forgiving and gracious and merciful. But when he shows up, his holiness is such that we're broken. We're like Peter. Get away from me. Like I I can't handle this kind of relationship with God, right? That's that's what happens with Peter. So what does Jesus do? Well, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. It's a fascinating chapter. I wish we had time to go through the whole thing. We do not. Um, I did... As we preach through the Gospel of Matthew, we did Matthew 11. I had to go back and look. It was in June of 2019. That's how long we've been in the Gospel of Matthew. Sorry about that. Um, so anyway, if you want to go back and listen to that, you can get the whole chapter. There's all kinds of good stuff that's in there. I want to zero in on the end, near the end of the chapter, um, kind of the middle of the chapter, actually, uh, verse 19. So what's happening here is Jesus is interacting with John's disciples. John's disciples are trying to figure out who he is, if he's truly the Messiah or not they've been sent out from john to do that and jesus is going to make a statement about who he is but before we get there we, we need to do a little work into the greek language everybody excited about talking about greek words at eight thirty in the morning when it's freezing outside yes everybody's excited at least you don't have a fan on you like i have on me anyway all right so um in english we have the word love right and we, we love and we love all kinds of things. So I love God. I love burritos. I love Amanda. I love basketball. Like all of those things use the same word. Hopefully you know that I feel slightly differently about some of those things than others, right? So we use the same word, but they're distinct. In Greek, they used four different words that all gets translated love. So one is Storge. Storge is the love that you would have for your family. It's a familial love. So uh, it's the love that I have for Tia, who's home from college right now. Hi, Tia. She's going back this afternoon. And so that's storge love. It's the love I have for my mother-in-law who's watching on the live stream. Hi, Ida. Good to see you. So that's storge love. That's great. Um, And then there's Eros. Eros is sensual love or romantic love. That's the love that I don't have for all of you. I only have for her, right? So there's, the, there's a different kind of love, and those are different words in Greek. Then there's the word phylos. Phylos is a friendship love. We might translate it affection. It's a, it's a love that is a choice that we make because of the affection that we have for someone, to be connected to them in friendship. And then there's the love that we typically attribute to God the love that we call agape love. It's unconditional love that's not based on anything that you do. So there's a, a love that God has for us that's unconditional. We attribute that to God because it's actually a character of God. So First John chapter 4 says God is love, and in Greek it says theos agape. So God is agape, unconditional love which is wonderful. It's kind of a that's kind of a warm nice thing for us. But we kind of marginalize it because first of all, God agape's everybody, right? Like that's I, I don't feel really special that God loves me because he loves everybody. I'm just some of everybody, right? And it almost feels like God doesn't have a choice because God is love. So therefore like like, he has to love me, right? Like, there's no, like, whatever. Like, he's, of course, he's agape towards me because he's agape towards everybody because he is by his very nature agape. But in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says a fascinating thing as he's actually recounting what he's been accused of. So let me just read for you two verses. Starting in verse 18, he says this For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. So he's talking about John the Baptist who comes, he's very ascetic, he's uh, very disciplined, he's doing all of these things that are um, ki- kind of odd, right? And, and he's being marginalized, and they're saying, that, like, that dude's crazy. Like, seriously, that dude's nuts. But then he says, the son of man came eating and drinking, and they, he's, he's referencing the teachers of the law, say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now that phrase, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, is in Greek, phylos. A phylos of tax collectors and sinners. What Jesus is being accused of by the teachers of the law is not of agapeing sinners too much. He's accused of phylosing with sinners. He's a friend, a choice with affection towards tax collectors and sinners. Pastor and author Greg Nettle makes the statement that Jesus was not crucified because he had too much agape. Like there, there's an understanding of the agape nature of God. That wasn't the problem. The problem was his phylos. The problem was Jesus didn't simply love from afar messed up, broken sinners, but he had affection towards them. He liked them. He chose to be with them. He enjoyed hanging out around the table. That's why they called him a glutton and a drunkard. Now, the book of Hebrews tells us that he was uh, connected in all of those ways, in fact, tempted in every way, and was without sin. So he didn't enter into that lifestyle but he accepted them as they were he loved them in fact you might draw it this way Jesus instead of being with us alone became one of us so now you have the Jesus still with the halo still smiling but now he's taking he's putting the baseball cap on like he's hanging out with us he's cheering for the Indians just like me, right? Like, that's great. And so now, or wh- whoever it is that you think he's cheering for. Um, and, and now my frown has turned into a smile because I recognize that God is choosing to be with me. So it's not just this, this experience that, ma- that Peter had of like, oh my goodness, he's God and I'm a sinner. But now it's he's God and he wants to be with me. He chooses to be with me. Jesus becomes one of us. Not just comes to be with us, but becomes one of us. So the question is, what do we do with that? How how do we respond to a God who is one of us, becomes one of us? So turn to Philippians 2. We're going to kind of wrap up there. And what I want to do is I want to walk through a very familiar passage in Philippians 2 two different times. I want to walk through it once, and it's going to feel like a warm blanket, which we all need right now. You're going to wish for warm gloves too, or at least I am. Uh, So it's going to feel nice and comforting and good. And then we're going to walk through it a second time, and it's probably going to feel a little bit more like a cattle prod that time around. So sorry about that. I'm just warning you up front. Second time through will be a little bit more challenging. So um, let me read. I'm going to start in uh, verse 4. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself and by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is what Paul, recounting the story of Jesus, says. God, Jesus, being in very nature God, do not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He was for us. And so in order to be fully for us, he comes down to be with us. He limits himself, humbles himself, and takes on flesh. He comes to be with us, but he doesn't stop there he humbles himself even further. And I think the phrasing is powerful. Uh, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now think about this. Paul makes the statement in the book of Romans that the wages of sin is death. That means for you and I, We are, because we were born into sin, because by our very natures we are sinful, rebellious against God, we're on a path towards death. Meaning, you don't have to choose to die, right? You don't have to to make a decision at some point in time, like, all right, I'm done. I'm just gonna die now. Like it, it it doesn't work that way, right? You die, whether you choose to die or not, you're going that direction. What's Paul say about Jesus? He became obedient to death. Now, I don't know all that that means, but I think part of what that means is the sinless God of the universe, even when taking on flesh, doesn't have to die. He chose to not just be with us, but be one of us. In his love and affection for us, in his desire for us to serve us, to care for us, to be the sacrifice for us, He became obedient to death. So Jesus is God for us. Jesus becomes God with us. But Jesus becoming one of us dies on our behalf. And then Paul makes this incredible statement that because of that sacrifice, Jesus is now exalted by the Father in a way that will ultimately be total. Right, all of creation, heaven, uh, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, all of creation will one day bow the knee to Jesus. But there's an invitation, because right now we're able to step into that. We're able to become. Remember, back at the beginning, part of the work of reconciliation that He's doing—Colossians chapter one, Ephesians chapter one—the work that's happening because of the sacrifice of Jesus. We're now invited into, because of His sacrifice. We're made able, we're made useful for that kingdom work because the God who is for us comes to be with us, becomes one of us, and dies on our behalf in order to reconcile us back to God so we can reconcile the world back to God. So we're invited, and we're invited because Jesus likes us and loves us which feels really good. Like, that, that's that's great. But see, there's a larger context where Paul's speaking that. So go back to the beginning of Philippians chapter 2. Instead of starting in verse 4, we're going to start in verse 1. Listen to what Paul says. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, basically what he's saying is, if you believe that God is for you, God is with you, that he's become one of you, and he's died on your behalf. If you if you have any sense of that, then, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Paul's making the same statement. We read the same section twice, but it's embedded in a much larger narrative, which is Paul saying there's a way that we enter into that worship. There's a way that we receive that reconciling work. And one of the ways that we do it is actually the very same thing that Jesus invited the disciples to do back in John chapter 1. Remember when we started to read? What did Jesus say when the disciples came? Come with me. Come and see. Come come model your life after me. Come live with me and do the things that I'm doing. Model your life after my life. What's Paul say? If there's any sense of the fact that Jesus has given himself for you, model your life after him. Do the things that he did. In what way? Before people. Be with people. Become one of the people around you. How do you do that? Well Paul's going to make it really clear. He he says first, you you need to be unified. So first, there's a there's a call to uh to having the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. He calls us to unity. Now, let's let's be clear. Um right now in our world, unity seems like a pipe dream, right? Like like we're we're as divided right now as I've ever seen, and I've talked to people who've been around a lot longer than me who've said the same thing. How can we possibly hold out unity as a way that we represent Jesus? Well, remember that unity is different than unanimity. So unanimity, sameness, is that we all are thinking and acting the exact same way so that means like you all want the browns to go to the super bowl just like i do right like you're all you're we're all kind of wired the same way jonathan's gonna have to change his his hat because that green bay thing that's gonna have to be out right um but the the coat's good orange that's great that's great so anyway so there there's a there sameness unanimity is that we would all be thinking the same thing unity is not sameness unity is that we are driven by something that's more important than all of those other things. That there's one thing that's elevated that is central for all of us, and that means that the things that are different between us are less important than the thing that unites us. So what Paul's saying is, the way that we love the world around us, the way that we're a testimony of the grace of Jesus to the world around us, is that we're unified, not because we think the same, Not because we have the same opinion about everything. Not because we vote the same. Not because we have the same opinion about social issues. But because we are all unified by something that we all agree is more important than any of those things. That's unity. And so what Paul's saying is the way that we show that we are for the world around us is by recognizing that there's something more important than what divides us. So we're united together and then he says now this is the get get ready your your pull your toes back in your toes might get stepped on here in a second um he says that we should have a posture of humility what's humility well it's actually thinking that other people's opinions might be more important than our opinions whoa <laughs> step back right Uh, Other people might actually know what they're talking about, and even if they don't, what Paul says is great. Um, uh, Consider, count others more significant than yourselves. Are they? Well, that's not really the point, right? Count them as more significant than yourselves. How do we practice humility? James chapter 1 makes this great statement. James says that we should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. I'd like that to be built into the Facebook algorithm. I don't know exactly how that works, but I would love to have that built into the Facebook algorithm, right? quick, Quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. What would happen, hypothetical situation, what would happen if the entire church of Jesus, people who said, I trust the sacrifice of Jesus, over my life, and I recognize that there's something more important, we're unified by something bigger than all this other stuff, what happened if all of us said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. In humility, we're going to consider others more important than ourselves. Honestly, can't even imagine it right this minute. It, it would be an incredible statement of the beauty of, of who Jesus was, who came to become one of us, a phylos of tax collectors and sinners, a phylos of Black Lives Matter and Antifa and Proud Boys and all of the, the extreme right and white supremacists. Like, uh, he, he liked those people. Like I know That's uncomfortable for us, right? But he liked people. He wanted to be... He became one of them without sin, Became one of them. In humility, consider others better than yourself. And then he says, be concerned about the needs of others. Do you know there's something underneath all of the narratives that are flowing around in the world around us? There's something underneath those. There, There are needs. There are concerns. In a lot of, most cases, there are fears What Paul says is, let each of you not look only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. If Jesus has come to be with us, to become one of us, and to sacrifice, die on our behalf, promising us eternity with him, not only then but now, then it's natural that we should be able to be more concerned about the needs interests, fears, concerns of others because he's already met all of ours. And so what Paul's saying is we're unified. We're, we're loving others by becoming one of the people around us. Now we're not all called to become one of every community around us. We're called into certain places, but, but can I submit to you? that we're each called into at least a circle that's not a circle primarily of believers in Jesus, that we're called to be one of, maybe it's our workplace, or maybe it's our neighborhood, or maybe it's the hobby or group that we're involved in, and that we're called like Jesus to be one of them yet without sin, that we become one of a group of people who are maybe flowing in a direction that we would feel very uncomfortable with, like tax collectors and sinners, right? And we're called to become one of them so that we can love them in Jesus' name so that we can earn the right to be heard. How do we do that? Well, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. You know, if, if I listen to my neighbor for days and weeks and months, at some point in time, my neighbor is going to say, what about you? What's your story? And all of a sudden, now I have the right to be heard because I've spent days and weeks and months listening. Jesus, at the end of his life, made this statement two different times, uh, John chapter 13 and then again in John chapter 15. As I have loved you, so you should love one another. How'd Jesus love you? Kind of rhetorical question, but not really, right? How'd Jesus love you? He gave up his life for you. Jesus is on his way to the cross. This is in the upper room where he's having this final conversation with his disciples. And he says, as I have loved you, now you're called to love the people around you. Go give up your life for those people. This is always true, but it's on display right now. Love will cost us something. Real love for the world around us will cost us something. We're going to have to step across the invisible lines that divide people in order to really love people. And Jesus not only invites us to do it, but he shows us how. He comes and does it for us. So what's the kingdom of God? God is for us. God comes to be with us. God, through Jesus, becomes one of us. And next week, we're going to wrap up the story. But for this week, I want to invite you to respond to that reality. And there's no better way for us to do that than the act of communion. Because it's a reminder that Jesus came to give his life for us. That he became one of us to the extent that the God of the universe could die that he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so just like that Philippians 2 story, there are two different applications. One is for us internally. We receive the fact that God is for us. He likes you. He likes me. And he gives himself for us. And so we receive that as we take the bread we remember the sacrifice that he made for us. As we drink the cup, we remember the blood that shed over us for the forgiveness of sins so that we would be reconciled to God. There's an inward vector. But there's also an outward. You know, we take in these elements, and then you're going to leave from here, and you're going to go into the world, and you're going to go into the world this week, and in a very real way, the hope that you have is going to be what the scriptures say Christ is. In us, the hope of glory. You're going to take Jesus into you, and then you're going to take him out into the communities that you become one of your neighborhoods, your workplaces, the people that you interact with. You're going to take him there. And so, as you come to the communion table, I want to invite you to come to receive but also to come to receive for the sake of taking him into the world, because both of those things are true.